0: So we started a sermon series last week called Talking Points, and we're looking at uh, different topics, right, that may come up when we're discussing the faith or discussing the topic of religion or God with a non-Christian, with an unbeliever. And so I do want to say before we dig in today, I'm going to pray in just a moment, but before we do that, I do want to throw out a couple of reminders, okay, So, so a couple of things. One... This whole series is set in the context of ongoing dialogue in a relationship of some kind, all right? So in other words, you are building a friendship with either a coworker, a neighbor, right? Or maybe it's a, even a family member, of course, that you've known for years, but you're starting a new conversation about faith or about religion, right? So this is in the context of having ongoing dialogue with people. Uh, so in other words, this, this is not a 30-second elevator pitch, right? That's, that's not what we're talking here because these are heavy topics, right? So these are topics that are gonna come up as we get to know people, as we begin to have meaningful conversation with new friends or old friends or, or a new neighbor or whoever it may be, right? We're talking with them about life, about the world around us. And so that's, that's what we have to keep in mind here. And number two, this is for everyone, Right, So no one is excluded from this idea, this concept of talking about religion or faith or God, even if they claim to be non-religious as we looked at last week. And so uh, I'm excited to continue this today, and we're going to be doing this through the month of August. But let's pray now and ask Jesus to, to bless us as we, as we think about how, how can we really engage those around us with these talking points. So let, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to that end. Jesus, we love you and we thank you so much that we got to celebrate with Steve today. Lord, baptism and just being such a beautiful picture of what's already happened in his heart. And Lord, that may be true for many in here today and for some, maybe not. Maybe they have not truly trusted you as their Savior. They have not given their lives to you. They have not believed in who you really are as the Son of God and the gospel. So, Jesus, I pray today that whoever is here, whether they follow you, whether they're interested in you, or whether they've been a Christian for many, many years, would you speak to all of us? Would you speak to us through your Holy Spirit and through your word and help us to understand how we can have good, healthy conversations with people about you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, today we're discussing how we can talk with someone about God. Because everybody has an opinion about God, right? So you're going to hear people say things like, well, I think God is like this, right? Or I think God is like that. Or I think God is just fill in the blank. That's why that's the title of the sermon today. I think God is blank, right? Because you're going to hear so many different opinions about God as he comes up in conversation with people around us. So you may hear people say something like, well, I think God is all about love. Or I, th- I think God just wants me to be happy. Or I think God can, can see us, but maybe he doesn't intervene in our lives. Maybe someone would even say, well, I think God is a figment of people's imaginations. Or I think God is waiting for me to get my act together, and then he can use me or he'll love me or whatever. C.S. Lewis, a famous theologian, said in Mere Christianity... He said a schoolboy was asked what he thought God was like, and he said, as far as he could tell, God was the sort of person who is always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. (laughs) Well, a schoolboy in the 20th century may have said that, but let me tell you just briefly, let me share with you what I saw yesterday. So (laughs) I've told you this before. I follow the New York Times opinion uh, section on Facebook, so I see the articles they post but I'm too cheap to actually pay for the subscription to read the article. So I love, watch, I just love reading people's comments, especially when it's a religious piece. So that was the case yesterday. I'm still too cheap to pay for it. But there were great comments, okay? I encourage you to read the comments. So the title of the article was, Does God Control History? Okay, and I know the guy that wrote it, uh, or I know who he is, and, uh, and so he's, he's, a, he's a Christian. And so he, he said, does God control history? Well, here, here was one comment that I noticed. Someone said, God doesn't seem... God doesn't seem as focused on creating history as much as he's a parent hoping his kids will develop better manners. And I think, you know, as a parent I mean, I kind of get that, but but I, I see what they're trying to say. See, they don't think that God is really involved, right? That he's set the world in motion and so he's just kind of sitting there hoping like a good old grandpa-like figure that, you know, we'll just finally get our act together and we'll develop better manners over time and, and be kind to one another and love one another just kind of magically over time, right? So you're going to hear people say things like that, right? As you're talking about God the concept of a higher being, right? As you're having these conversations with people, you're gonna hear them say all such a variety of things and you may even hear them to you know, refer to God as the man upstairs, right? That's a common phrase we hear. Or even just last week, I heard someone on TV refer to him as the big guy. you know. And these are irreverent, right? If you think about it, but it's because people don't understand, right? Who God really is. So the point is this. Anybody who says they believe in some kind of higher power, right? Now, whether they would use the word God as the label to describe that higher power or not, but anyone who believes there is some kind of transcendent being over us, some kind of higher power who at least believes that much, has an opinion about what this higher being or God is like. So our challenge as Christians, living in the year 2023 in a very ongoing secularized community and city and nation and world. If someone's belief about what they would call God is so skewed, it's so far off that essentially they've created their own version of God, how can we, as followers of Jesus Christ, how can we lead them to the one true God of the Bible? How can we talk to them and engage with them ultimately to point them to Jesus and his gospel? We've got to be prepared. We saw 1 Peter 3 last week. We talked about the need for preparation, right? And we're not trying to win an argument. We're not trying to prove ourselves smarter or highly intellectual. That's not at all what this is. We just want people to see the goodness of Jesus Christ. But to do that, we do need to be prepared. We need to talk with non-Christians in, I believe, three ways about God. We must be prepared to speak to their mind, to their will, and to their heart. The mind, the will, and the heart. You see, if the person we're talking to eventually does come to faith, then they will realize that they must devote themselves entirely to God. So look at Matthew 22. Jesus said this in his own words. He said, You shall love love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He says that's the great and first commandment. So in other words, it's the entirety, right? It's the entirety of our being. It's all that we are. And so I think it's important for us to be ready to talk about God with people in a way that helps them see that God is going to affect their mind. He's going to affect their will or their willpower, right? And he's going to affect their heart. Now, depending on the person or the context, you may need to emphasize one of those over the others, but it's probably gonna be It's probably going to take some kind of combination of all three. And remember, like we said last week, as we talk about God, we're talking about him with gentleness, with respect, right? We're talking about him with patience. The goal is not to win that argument, it's being patient. We have to do a lot of listening, a lot of understanding to know where they're coming from. So to that end, today, when talking about God with an unbeliever, let's let's talk about that, the mind, the will, the heart. Number one, speak to their mind be logical, right? Now, maybe, has there ever been a time where where you thought you knew a lot about something and then you experienced that something or you got into it and realized, man, I didn't know anything about it. I mean, anybody married, right? (laughs) Anybody have kids? I mean, before we had kids, boy, we thought we could have just written the book on parenting. But then it's like, oh, that doesn't work the way we thought it would. Okay, it's all good, right? Randy Newman, says in his book, I quoted him a lot last week, just one time this week. Uh, in his book, Mere Evangelism, he says that many people, he says many people have presuppositions about God. In other words, they think they know a lot about God, right? And, and then they start to learn more about him. And maybe this was the case for you. So like if you didn't grow up in a religious environment or you didn't grow up in church, then maybe later in life you started learning more about God and what's, what starts happening? You start realizing that a lot of your presuppositions, a lot of the things that you thought you knew were actually incorrect about who God is. So he says that people may have these presuppositions that need to be torn down and untangled. So maybe there's just a spaghetti of, of thoughts, right? In our heads about God or what he might be like, what he might not be like. And so there may be some untangling that needs to happen in our conversations that actually clear a pathway, clear a mental pathway for us to believe in the gospel. So I think the biggest obstacle that most Americans face, so we're talking about our particular culture, right? I think the biggest obstacle is that we think about God we, we essentially create our own version, right? Our own version of God that's just simply illogical. Think about it. Look at Genesis 1. By the way, we're, 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 this is a topical series, so we're looking at different passages throughout the Scripture, so we're bouncing around a little bit today, but just look on the screens. Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Okay, so this is very important to understand the nature of who we are. God created us in his image. But what do most people do? They come up with a version of God in their image, essentially that suits their needs and what they want. A tamed version of God that they can live with and they can deal with in their minds. The late Christian theologian R.C. Sproul, in one of his books, about atheism, he says, <clears throat> he said, he, he talks about this argument of a 19th century uh, German philosopher named Ludwig Feuerbach. Now, I don't expect you to remember that at all, unless it comes up in Jeopardy. You may want to jot this down, okay? Uh, Ludwig Feuerbach. all right? And here's, here's his critique of Christianity, all right? Here he, here's what he said. He says he believes that, that men create gods in man's own image. So, in other words, our gods are mere mental projections of ourselves, okay? So Farabach said, such as are a man's thoughts and dispositions, such is his God. And now Sproul says this varies, right? So this is gonna vary from culture to culture and the gods that we come up with inevitably take on characteristics of the culture. Now Sproul says that, for instance, here's an example, the ancient Germans... You know, you guys know them, right? Right, the ancient Germans who had, they had this God who was a supreme warrior. That was their God, because why? They valued conquer and conquering other nations and and becoming a superpower in that way. In the ancient times, the ancient Greeks, right? He says the ancient Greek gods were dominated by Zeus because Zeus was the strongest of the gods and physical strength was an exalted quality back then. Here's the thing, I think he's right. I think he's right in the sense that people do create this version of God in their heads that they can deal with that ultimately is a mental projection of what they would like to be themselves. Think about that. In our American culture, what does that look like? Pastor J.D. Greer, he says, most Americans want a God who is slightly, only a slightly bigger slightly smarter version of us right that's what we want when we think of God and his involvement in our personal day-to-day lives when we think of God and his involvement over the span of history what do we really truly want deep down maybe just a little bit bigger than us and a little bit smarter than us so that we don't seem so lowly and maybe we can control more things in our lives so we dumb God down we dumb him down to more of an idea or a concept that we can live with without having to look to him as, here's the key, an authority. An authority over us to whom we are held accountable for our sins. So if you hear someone, right, if you're, if you're talking about God with somebody and they refer to God as the man upstairs, you know, they probably just want a nice grandpa-like figure who's pretty relaxed. You know, he's not going to take him too seriously. You know, you're, you know how it is, right? You grandparents know, right? You, you let the grandkids get away with things that the parents don't let them do. I know how it is. I know what y'all are doing, right? <laughs> Maybe that's what we think God is like, though. He's going to let us get away with some stuff we won't tell the parents, you know? Or some people, right? Some people you encounter may believe in more of an impersonal force, kind of like on Star Wars, right? So they know something. Well, I believe something is holding the universe together, right? So there's some kind of power out there that's holding the universe together. And maybe they would call this thing God, but that's an easy way to escape accountability, isn't it? If there's an impersonal force who cannot know you by name and doesn't actually see everything that you're doing, it's more of a power, well, then you can do whatever you want. You can live however you want if that's the God that you've created in your mind. So whatever version... Whatever version of God people create in their minds, here's why that is illogical, because guess what? We all can't be right. (laughs) We all can't be right. That violates the law of non-contradiction. In other words, something cannot be A and non-A at the same time, in the same way. So in other words, it's illogical for God to be all these different versions that we wish him to be or we want him to be. We all can't be right. And what we believe as Jesus' followers is that anything less, anything less than the one true God cannot be God. Sproul, to quote him again in his book, Defending Your Faith, he points out that the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, you guys know him, right? Anselm from around 1100. Again, you don't have to remember these names. I'm just referencing them. Here's the thing. His argument His argument was that a supreme being is necessary. So this helps us understand that God is and must be a perfect being. He's infinite in all his attributes. That a perfect being is necessary for all things to even exist. So the logic of it is this. Any version of God someone comes up with in their mind is less than perfect. The man upstairs, the grandpa-like figure who may pat us on the back every now and then or give us some helpful tips every now and then is not a God that is even possible. He is less than perfect and a perfect creator must exist for all things to exist. But what we must encourage people to see is that the one true God of the Bible is so much greater. He's so much better. He's better than anything else we could ever dream up on our own. Jen Wilkin in her book, None Like Him, says the God of the Bible is infinite. He's immeasurable. He's unquantifiable. He's uncontainable. He's unbound. He's utterly without limit. He is infinitely good. He is infinitely powerful. He is infinitely wise. He is infinitely holy. We can't scratch the surface of his being and who he is. He is eternally, get this, Not not only is he infinite in all of his attributes, he is eternally unchanging. What does that mean? That means that he's trustworthy. Look at Exodus 3. This is so pivotal, this, this passage, this encounter that Moses had with God is so pivotal. You know this story, if you're familiar with the Bible, the burning bush. God appeared to Moses to speak to him. He says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, well, what's his name? Right, because in their minds, they're thinking, well, we know there's this God for that and there's this God we created for that and there's this other God that we have for this. So which, what's this one's name? He says, what shall I say to them? What did God say his name was? This is great. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, I don't, that, that's a whole sermon in itself, but let me give you the short part. You know what God is saying there? He's saying, I have always been exactly the way I always will be. I am eternally existent and infinitely powerful over all things. I am who I am, not who you wish me to be. What we have to help people understand over time is that this kind of God, the one true God, the only God, is the best thing for us. We need God to be perfect in all these ways. Why? Why is it the best thing for us? Because he's infinitely good. He's infinitely powerful and infinitely wise. He is trustworthy. And we don't have to try to change him. We don't have to try to come up with a different version of him. He is perfect the way he is and always has been and always will be. That is logically the best thing for us. And that leads to the second point, number two. So not only must we speak to their mind, so be logical, but when we're engaging in this conversation, also speak to the will. And be humble about that. Now that humility goes both ways. We must be humble as we talk with them and listen. They must be humble to submit to their will to God. Look at Romans 11. This is helpful. Romans 11, 33 through 36, Paul says this. He says, You know, it takes humility. It takes some serious humility to acknowledge what Paul is saying here, doesn't it? This humility that we see Paul talking about the way he's talking about God, that kind of humility is going to be needed for anyone, anyone, me, you, your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, anybody to truly grasp and see the greatness of God. It's going to take this kind of mindset. You see, not only will unbelievers in your life have to come to that logical conclusion that God is perfect in all his ways. He must exist. They will have to come to terms with the fact that belief in the God of the Bible means a submission of the will to him, right? Because if he is perfect, if he is perfect, you know what that means. That means we are held accountable to him because we are not perfect, right? He is a God who demands obedience to his will, so it is going to take a denial and a submission of ours. To, go, uh, to quote Jen Wilkin again in her book, she gives some great examples of what this looks like as we think, as we talk about God. So she talks about how there are some of God's attributes, right? There's some of his characteristics that we should seek to reflect ourselves so there's some things that we should mirror about god right so he is loving we should seek to be loving he is good we should seek his goodness right he is merciful we should dis- we should display mercy but there are some there are some attributes of god that are only true of him so they are unique and reserved to him right so we want them to be true though, of us, right? So God is all powerful, but what do we do, right? See, we want a version of God that gives us some of that power, right? So we try to control our lives. We try to control every little situation, We try to control and work out things to make them go just nice and smooth and orderly as possible for our lives to be comfortable, for us to have money, for us to have better friends or at least perception from our friends. We do so much to try to control all these little things and it just wears us out when all along we should be trusting in the one who controls all things. He is all powerful. You are not. So chill out. Right? I mean, It's that simple. Pastor told me to chill out. That's what I'm going to do today on the couch, honey. That's what he told me to do, right? <laughs> Think about this. God is all-knowing, right? God is all-knowing. We want to know everything, though. We want to be in the know. We want to know what's going on in people's lives. We want to know what's going to happen in the future, and we build up this anxiety when we don't. So as we're talking with unbelievers about God and the human pride problem, right? We must be humble. And we must show them that this is our problem. Admit to them, right? Be humble and just say, listen, I struggle with this. I try to control my life. I try to know things that I don't even need to know. Admit to them that you struggle with that still, even as a follower of Jesus. But this is where, see, this is where it turns, right? It turns from talking about the will to the heart. That's, that's the third and final point today. Speak to their heart. Not just the mind, be logical. Not only the will, be humble. But speak to their heart. Be personal about it. You see, we looked at it a little bit last week. But I want us to look again at Acts 17. It's just a, a, Acts 17 when Paul was in Athens, Greece in the first century sharing the gospel with people. Man, just what an awesome example uh, of getting to know a culture getting to know people, listening to them and what they believe, telling them what you believe. I just love the dialogue here. So, so I want to explain it a little bit as I go. Acts 17, beginning verse 22. So he's in Athens, Greece, and here's what he says. So Paul, all right, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So just imagine, Paul's walking through Athens, Greece, right? Ancient city, temples are everywhere, statues are everywhere, right? And here's this altar he comes across, and the inscription says, to the unknown God. Now he's walking through the city, and he sees temples devoted to other kinds of gods. There's multiple gods in Athens, But he gets to this one and he just you just kind of picture him just kind of sitting there and thinking, that's funny. It's funny that they've created so many versions of God that they can't even, they've run out of names. (laughs) They've run out of names, right? But he knows that they're religious. In other words, he knows that they believe in some kind of higher power. So what does he say? What therefore you worship. Look at this, verse 23. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, you got to love this. pauls you see what he's doing? He's bringing it from the 30,000 foot view down to the cross. That's what he's doing. Oh, is this God? Is this unknown God? This version of God you've created? He's not distant. He's not some impersonal force. No, what does he say? Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him... We live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The art and imagination of man. That's what we're doing, forming God in our imagination. Verse 30, he says, the times of ignorance... God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul started and met them where they were, right? He met them where they were logically, He met them where they were with their willpower and and wanting to create their own versions of God. But then he got personal. Why did he get personal, though? Because we serve a personal God. He's not far from each one of us. Colossians 1.15 speaks of Jesus Christ. Same author, Paul, right? Paul, same guy, later on wrote this letter. He said this about Jesus, he said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then later on in verse 19, he said, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Listen, what people need to know in our lives is not that there's just some higher power who set the world in motion or perhaps he's a little smarter than them, a little stronger than them, a different version of everything that they wish they were. What people need to know is that God is not distant. He is not far away. He is not unknown or unknowable. He, he became one of us. He loved us so that he became human, in the flesh, fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ, to do what we could never do. All of our efforts to try to manipulate our lives, to control our lives, to know everything, all of these efforts to try to impress people and prove to God, prove to others, prove to ourselves that somehow we are worthy, that somehow we are strong, that somehow we can figure things out and maybe find our way to God? No, God knew it's it's impossible. You're just creatures. I'm the creator. So he came to us to do what we could never do. Jesus lived the life that we want to live, that we tried to live, a perfect life. Jesus did that. And we can't. Jesus died on the cross not because it was just a kind gesture. He did it to pay the penalty of our imperfection. He paid the penalty on the cross for our rebellion against our creator. For the sin that has corrupted us to our core. Jesus gave his life in our place as our substitute. And as Paul said to the Athenians back in the first century, and we say this today, we have full assurance. We have full assurance that he is God in the flesh, that he is God forever, king of the universe because he raised him from the dead. And So for those, for those who turn away, for those who turn away from trusting themselves to be all they think they can be or should be or want to be or prove to others they can be for those who in humility turn away from just the effort and the pressure of trying to make yourself your own little version of God and turn to the one true God, Jesus Christ. We experience that same resurrection life now in the way that he changes our thoughts and transforms our being and our character from the inside, but forever in the way that he will give us a home eternally with him you see that? Yes, ultimately, Jesus is who we have to lead people to. You see, God is far greater. He's so much better than even anyone can imagine. He's not a distant, impersonal force. He's a grandpa. He's, a, he's not that grandpa-like figure, right? In the clouds, just floating around. No, he is Emmanuel, God with us. One more One more theologian to quote to you today. The great theologian, J.I. Packer. He wrote a famous book, many of you probably know about it, called Knowing God. He says that what really matters is not that we know God, but that He knows us. Listen to this. He says, all my knowledge of God depends on His sustained initiative in knowing me. I know Him because He first knew me. And continues to know me. He knows me as a friend. One who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me. Or his attention distracted from me. And no moment therefore where his care falters. There is unspeakable comfort in knowing. That God is constantly taking knowledge of me. In love. And watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief. In knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. He says, he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see. And he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. Yet, he says, for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend. And has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. You see, the people in our lives who aren't sure about who God is or what he's like. What they really need to know is that even though he knows all your dirty little secrets. And even though he knows you to the depth of your heart. He knows everything about you, all the bad stuff, all of it that other people don't know that you've tried to cover up yourself. God knows all of it. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, that, that love, that rescue mission, that redemptive initiative that pursuit of us from a holy God with unfathomable grace and mercy. Isn't that better and sweeter than any version of God we could ever think of? It's unbelievable that God would put himself in our place and take the penalty that we owe and give us, and give us him, give us himself, and give us the riches of his glory in heaven. And that's the good news. That's the gospel that's what people need to understand about God. Like I said at the beginning, this isn't a 30-second elevator conversation, is it? So develop those friendships. Man, what a beautiful testimony we saw this morning in the baptism. Develop those friendships with your neighbors, with your coworkers. Have, spend time with them. Have lunch. Have coffee. Have meaningful conversation and dialogue about who God is. And just watch the Lord work. Be patient, be humble. We have nothing to prove. Just be patient, be humble. Watch the Holy Spirit of God work in those conversations. Speak to their mind, speak to their will, speak to their heart. Why don't we pray and ask Jesus to help us do that? Lord, may we be the humble people of God. Lord, if we're known for anything, let it be our humility as we seek to be winsome, as we seek to convince, as we seek to persuade. Lord, may we do so with gentleness and respect and humility, which mirrors your own humility, Jesus. That you humbled yourself and you came to this earth to become one of us, to do what we could never do to live that perfect life because you are infinitely perfect and good. So Lord, in our heart of hearts, the truth is we want to be our own version of God. We want to be God. So God, forgive us. Even as Christians now, forgive us for where we try to mimic you in all the wrong ways and control every little thing and know every little thing. Lord, let us live with humility, putting you where you belong as the infinite God of the universe and submitting our will to you. So Lord, I just pray for anybody in here today that is struggling with their thoughts about faith. Logically, Lord, give them clear guidance in your truth and in your word. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with that prideful willpower that you would just give them a dose of humility they need. And Lord, I pray for all of us who struggle to connect our heart with our head sometimes and we just pursue other things. We put you on the back burner. We think that we'll get back to you later and we pursue other things. Lord, show us that you are a personal God who pursued us. So our other pursuits in the end will fail us. Lord, it's only your pursuit of us that lasts. Let us find rest and comfort in that. So thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you for loving us in a way like nothing else can. We give our lives to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.